This is episode number 56 with Dr. Lori Desitel, a returning guest who I know everyone loves as much as I do. If you want to hear our first interview with Lori, go back and listen to episode 16 with Lori and Michael McKnight on the future of educational neuroscience in our schools and communities. Welcome to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast. My name is Andrea Samadhi. I'm a former educator who's been fascinated with understanding the science behind high performance strategies in school sports and the workplace and created this podcast to bring the most current neuroscience research along with high performing experts who've risen to the top of their field with specific strategies or ideas that you can implement immediately, whether you're a teacher or a student in the classroom or working in the corporate world to take your results to the next level. Thanks so much for tuning into the podcast today. If this is your first time here, I am so grateful you've taken the time to listen. Today, I'm thrilled with the opportunity to speak with Dr. Lori Desitel for the second time. I first found Lori from her TED Talk from Indianapolis when I was searching for anything in the field on educational neuroscience, and this is back in 2014. And I watched her videos to understand how parts of the brain worked, how they're interconnected and impact learning. In Lori's TED Talk, she mentions that neuroscience and education have come together. And it's a huge connection because everyday experiences change the brain structurally and functionally. And I thought this is incredible that we can finally explain how we can accelerate learning with this understanding of the brain. So over the years, I've continued my research in this field and each person I speak with ties back to Dr. Lori Desitel as a pioneer in this field. Her work is groundbreaking. She puts the research into practices that we must all learn to stay at the height of our productivity and achievements. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much for coming back on as a returning guest. Andrea, I'm so excited to be with you um, in this hour. And just thank you so much for all you're doing in this discipline, in this field. And when we go back to the origins, it really is about our future world citizens, which, you know, those these are our children and the caregiving and, and just this, this beautiful complex brain that drives everything. Absolutely. Well, I do feel like we're old friends now since we had a chance to meet live in October, right. all these years of emailing and social media. And the fact that you've been sharing your new book with me in real time as you're writing it, that is so powerful. I haven't been able to put my phone down to see, you know, what's coming next. Um, before we dive into these questions, do you think you could give a little bit of a background of why you think this book is so timely and maybe about some of the work that you've been doing um, in the field of education? So, Andrea, thank you so much. And just like probably all of us, this is this discipline and this research is never, ever completed. Um, I, I love what Dr. Bruce Perry says. He says, you know, we're on about inch two of a two or three mile journey with what we know about the brain. And so um, this framework, the application of educational neuroscience is taking the growing burgeoning research that is coming in monthly, yearly, and weaving it into the context of how children learn, how children feel and sense their worlds, how children behave. And so um, I think that as this book was being created, even before the written word, 
we have seen the severity of how adverse childhood experiences are affecting communities and families and children and educators. Our mental and emotional well-being has been very compromised. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I feel as if there's not one reason. Sometimes I'm asked, well, Lori, what's going on? You know, what's happened 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? And I feel that our world has changed. I was just reading this research this morning, and it was saying that since 1986, our brains are taking in five times more information, almost 174 newspapers a day. And when you think about that type of information overload, um, it, you know, it just, our brains can't process that well. Mm -hmm. So when we think about adversity and trauma, we are seeing increased poverty. We are seeing increased marginalization of communities. And um, we are seeing some pain-based behaviors from or originating from these adversities that are being carried into the classroom. It's interesting, you and I are doing this interview during the pandemic, and we also are very aware of the um, effects of this pandemic. We can't know what they will be exactly, but I do in my heart and in my mind feel that we are going to see an escalation of dysregulation and um, behaviors that we are not going, that we haven't seen in the past. And so that's a lot of this work right now is, is really looking at how this pandemic is really affecting all of us with isolation, with chronic unpredictability, and with restraint, that emotional restraint that we're all experiencing. So it's, it's really an interesting time. And even though the book began about a year ago, completing it in this time has been um, very challenging and very rewarding and eye-opening and reflective for me too as I live these words. It's so true, Lori. And what exactly are you doing? I know you're spearheading the teacher training programs in educational neuroscience, but when I see you in the schools, explain like how you're going into the schools and what you're doing when you travel. So a large part of the work that I'm doing right now is being in the classroom. And um, I love sharing with teachers during professional developments. I love teaching the courses I do at Butler University. But Butler and uh, my former university, Marion, several years ago, gave me a course release so that I was able to take this application of the research into the classroom and co-teach with teachers mm -hmm. because I really wanted to get a just a solid sense of how regulation could look in a fifth grade classroom. What can teachers and administrators actually do in real time that would not just be so abstract, but you know, we could begin to implement these at the ground level. So that's a lot of the work I'm gonna be, um, I think that's driven most everything that I'm doing. I've been in this past year, um, I was in fifth grade, and um, I've, in fact, some of the books, some of the stories in the chapters are from a couple of students that I worked beside. And um, just like so many teachers, abruptly in March, my time in the fifth grade classroom ended. And mm -hmm. so here in Indiana, our schools closed. I think some of the um, 
districts had two days to prepare, maybe three days to prepare, but the many of the students did not know the day that they left that they weren't coming back. None of us knew. Right. So um, that's an issue too, because there was no closure and so many of our students rely on our schools for that sacred, stable, emotionally available, safe place. And that is what is heartbreaking. So it's it's been, um, that, that's been the crux, the foundation of this work is being back in the classroom and working with pre-K through ninth grade student, you know, ninth grade freshmen in high school. And I will continue to do that this upcoming academic year. Incredible. I've loved watching everything you're doing. It's so motivating. And even during the pandemic, I see you still going in and working with teachers via Zoom. So I know yeah. you're still working hard over there. I want to just get right into the questions here that I have for you. So your new book, it's called Connections Over Compliance, Rewiring Our Perceptions of Discipline. It begins with exploring the new perception of discipline with educator and parent brain state. And I wish I knew this when I stood in front of my class as a new teacher in Toronto in the late 90s. I was always wondering why no one was listening and then their behavior would escalate. And I'm sitting there with my calendar going, when is this year going to be over? I had no idea where to even begin. And I never would have thought of to begin with myself. Can you explain why we must look under the hood at our own brain state when we're teaching or relating to others? So first of all, Andrea, thank you for asking that question. It's really critical for the well-being and the um, addressing of the social and emotional needs of children and adolescents. I was listening to some research, and I can't remember exactly where I heard this, but I've been studying several researchers, uh, Gabor Mate, Bonnie, uh, she wrote The Heart of Trauma. And what we are learning is that the best thing we can do for students and the best thing we can do for our own children is to take care of ourselves. And that is probably for some people thinking, well, yes, of course, that makes sense. But what's happening is we are learning and understanding that emotions are so contagious that when dysregulated children enter school and they are showing up looking oppositional, defiant, shut down, disrespectful, when they are presenting behaviors that seem so oppositional that we unintentionally jump into that power struggle and into that conflict and we get triggered with our own experiences that may be buried. And what we're learning is that we need to address as an administrator, and this has been the work for the past probably six months, I've really shifted the focus from students to the adults in the building. Because what I'm learning is that when the adult brain feels calm and feels safe, and when the adult brain feels felt, then that has this beautiful contagion for students. And um, the research supports this. Dr. Steve Porges talks about how our facial expressions and the tone of our voice, not our words, is extremely calming to nervous systems. And so it's really, you know, when I take away the skin and the flesh of two people, I'm looking at one nervous system and another nervous system 
co-regulating with one another. And if that adult nervous system is coming in rough, then that child is going to feel that. And that research, you know, it, Dr. Gabor Mate shares that when the mother is suffering, the child is suffering too. The child feels all of that emotion and sensation subconsciously. So it's really um, exciting to me to think that we are truly now going to address educator well-being by not talking about self-reflection, but let's start talking about body reflection because our brains take in millions of bits of sensory information per second subconsciously or implicitly. And those are held without conscious awareness. So oftentimes, me, I mean, you as a mom, me as a mom, I can think of hundreds of times where I thought I was calm and I thought I was, you know, just really ready to discipline. And one of my own children made a comment or looked at me in a, in a way that where I puffed up. And um, it, was, it was about me. You know, what was that? that triggered that type of response in me. So I, I'm excited to think about educator brain state. I'm excited to think not about helping teachers self-reflect, but about really helping educators to body reflect and to really um, give them the time and the space and the safety to do so. So that's something brand new. And I talk about that in the book um, a little bit, but I'm really, really excited because I feel like this is not only going to empower educators, but it's also going to relieve the educators and they are going to see almost an immediate change when they begin to shift their uh, brain and body state, meeting the student where they are. That's so powerful, Lori, because I, I think about, you know, being a mom and here I am, I'm, you know, doing this work and I understand all this stuff. And then I'm saying, quick kids, let's get in the car, go, go. What's taking you so long? And then I'm rushing my kids into the car and sending them off to school where they now sit in the classroom after their mom has just shooed them off. And I thought, well, I'm not getting this at all. I'm missing the boat with, you know, I'm writing the lesson going, yeah, I haven't got it yet. But that's the power of this that at least it, it, we know where we've got to start and then it's just going to take some practice from here. And I started, instead of telling my kids to hurry up, I started singing a song with them, the hurry, hurry, rush, rush. So they're laughing and then getting in the car, but I had to do something because if I didn't rush them into the car, they'd, they'd never leave the house. So I just had to think of a new strategy of what am I going to do? That's not screaming at them and messing up their brain state before they go off to school, but that, it's that awareness first of what to do. No, it, it absolutely is. And we live, um, you know, it's just, it, it's really interesting. There's a, so much new research on um, the, the function and the creativity of left and right hemisphere. And um, that's a whole nother podcast, but it really is, you know, we live in a world where we really are saturated in looking at individual processes, looking at analyzing specific bits of information. And that right hemisphere holds that pain and that trauma when it comes to us. 
and it holds that suffering. And it also holds relational, relationally safe, what they call that personal in-between space. Um, it's a sacred space. And so it's, you know, when all of those bits of sensory overload come in, those bits of information come in, and we are processing, you know, it analytically and, you know, not looking at kind of the big picture, then that trauma and those, those pain-based feelings and sensations can get subconsciously buried, and they do. And so, you know, we, we and that, this happens to all of us. But what the, what I love about this time is that we have an opportunity as educators and as parents to build into our procedures and routines ways to create, you know, regulatory practices, you know, where we're taking three depth or three deep breaths or where we're taking a walk or where we're jumping rope, you know, for 30 seconds or where we're just, you know, just holding something warm or soft in our hands, or we're wrapping up in a blanket. I mean, there are so many regulatory practices and strategies that can become a part of our routines and our procedures. They're, they aren't extras, and that's the exciting part of this. Definitely, definitely. Well, that leads right into my next question. So I'm so grateful about this research um, to help us with these strategies. But how can we get a better understanding of regulated versus dysregulated brain state? Like these were not terms that I was taught in teacher training class 20 years ago. And in a perfect world, we can all rec recognize when we're becoming dysregulated and have some strategies to bring us back on course. But can you just explain how do we know when we're dysregulated? Is it you know, like I'm losing my temper? And then how, how would we know how to get back on track? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question, and I appreciate you asking that. And really, it's the, it really is kind of the crux of this new lens for relational brain-aligned discipline. Regulation has become kind of a buzzword now. You know, I'm hearing it, you know, are you regulated? Are you dysregulated? And so I want to be very intentional about how we're using that, that term. And this is where I feel a regulated nervous system is being aware of your, it's a body reflection. It's a body scan that, that really provides us th those sensations that we're experiencing. And you just mentioned some of those. I know during this time that I'm not sleeping well at night. And I've heard that from several teachers um, where there are moments where you can't get that deep breath. You know, your, your breath feels caught in your chest. There feels like there's something lodged or you wake up or you, you move through the day and all of a sudden your heart starts to beat quickly. Um, and, and then you have, you know, and, and sometimes we're not even aware of the thoughts that we might have that would create that type of sensory activation. But what we know is that when we are aware of those sensations in our bodies, and that's that embodied awareness. And I, I, I think this is gonna be so critical for us to delve beneath feelings because this is this is foundational some of us we can tell you how we feel but it really doesn't it just doesn't hit the mark um but when you really understand what's happening in your body and and you could just share it i feel hot i see i i feel flashy i feel edgy i can't get a deep breath there's a lump in my throat my hands are sweaty my cheeks feel hot. I feel dizzy. 
I feel lightheaded. All of those are, you know, it, it, it's just like our body is our greatest teacher. So this is where we're starting with children. But what I've learned in the last six to 12 months is this is where we have to begin with educators. So co-regulating is this is where we provide, based on our safe nervous system, a stable, emotionally available, safe place for that child to unload. Mm -hmm. And we can, we can address that unloading with gentle eye contact, with a tone, with validation, with noticing a tear, noticing, you know, something that we see that, that maybe the child can't see, like, you know, maybe you seem like you're just, you know, you're holding yourself really, really tight. It is giving the child or the adult an opportunity through suggestion or through wondering. And, and so I really want to be, when I say suggest, and we, we can suggest what that child is sensing in their bodies, but we're not labeling it for them. We can suggest or wonder if those tears feel um, sad or do those tears feel scary, we can suggest, but we don't want to label those. So co-regulation is really providing that, that place where one safe, stable, emotionally available nervous system can sit beside that, that child. And, um, and, and, and sometimes, Andrea, what I'm learning every day is that it doesn't happen with words. There's, it, it's, it's, it's really a nonverbal presence. It's a presence of sacred safety. Again, that our bodies share so readily, but we're just not in tune to reading body-to-body -body language. That's just not what we've done before. So it's a different pathway. Oh, that's amazing. I wish I knew this, um, but that's okay. I'm, I'm learning now. And it's well, I wish I had known this too as a parent. I, I think back all the time about my three children. I mean, they're older now, and I'm, I can use this now with them. But when they were little, I mean, I think of all the missed opportunities, but we don't, that's, that's not, that's energy that is not productive. And so you know, we, we, we need that present moment right here is, is the most important moment. Absolutely. Well, I actually learned about Dr. Bruce Perry from you and a couple of our most recent podcasts, we focus on his research and you quote him in the beginning of your book where he states that the key to the success of any educational experience is the capacity to go to the cortex. Yet each year, nearly one third of all children attending U.S. public schools will have significantly impaired cortical functioning and behavioral challenges due to abuse, neglect, domestic violence, poverty, and other adversities. So how are teachers expected to teach if this is the case and create these co-regulation strategies that they can use like clockwork? So um, thank you for sharing that question and, and also sharing Dr. Perry's, um, you know, quote, because it's, it's just so true. And I, I want to share a short story, but I'll, I'll go back to this. So this can feel overwhelming to us as teachers, you know, thinking, 
how am I going to address all of this adversity that's happening in his child's life? I have no control over their poverty. I have no control over the abuse that's happening at home or, you know, it just, it can feel just so heavy to us when we think about it. And one of the things that we are sharing in our workshops and professional development through this framework is that think of, you know, educational neuroscience as the plate. And, and it really isn't adding to the plate. It is the plate because the plate is, you know, brain architecture, brain. And, and I want to say not just brain, it's embodied brain architecture because that brain and the body move through a bi-directional highway. And so when we think about what we can do, it's built. These practices and strategies are meeting students where they are. So when we have a second grade student at seven years old, who comes in just screaming or who's teary or who refuses to work or who starts, you know, just disrupting right off the bat. We know that in that survival brain state, when we, when a child is dysregulated, when we're dysregulated, that, that developing brain emotionally is probably lagging behind that chronological age. So you might have a seven-year-old, but we have to remember that the behaviors that we're seeing may resemble that of, you know, maybe of a three or four year old. Mm -hmm. So um, we, one of the things that we do know is that, and this is a part of the new book, it's kind of the golden nugget of this, of this new book is that we've created sensory and attachment and cortical strategies and practices, meeting students where they are through morning meetings, through rituals at the end of the day, through um, how we greet students, they really become a part of what we're already doing. We just are more intentional about those. So um, that is, and, and I think when you and I were together, I shared that in the workshop when I was in Tucson, um, that you know we are right now collecting and helping our pre-K through high school educators to really meet kids where they are um, and, and to really you know understand that this, you know, if a child walks in and they are, they throw their backpack down and they fall asleep, um, we can't make them learn. And, and these, you know, these achievement gaps that we're seeing really are adversity gaps. So that's a part of it. We also, Andrea, are really, really just excited because when our children understand why they sense the world the way they do and why they feel the way they do, they are relieved and they feel, they feel so powerful. So we're teaching them the science. And I shared that with you before. That is growing exponentially. They are talking about their prefrontal cortex. They're talking about, you know, limbic, the amygdala. And again, I'm simplifying the complexities of the brain. I know this. But for our children and adolescents, who have been traditionally given labels. They know what their labels are. Attention deficit disordered, emotionally disturbed, learning disabled, dysfunctional. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on. And so what I'm very excited about is to share with our children in helping them create an identity where it's not a pathological identity, it's a growth identity. You know, it is saying my brain has the neuroplasticity to change. So through our procedures and routines, morning meetings, rituals at the end of the day, how we begin and end a class, how we transition through a day, 
these practices are helping children to learn about their neuroanatomy, their regulatory, their touch points, meaning these are co-regulatory practices where we're, you know, we are just facing and intercountering with one another in calm ways. And, um, and it's really, really exciting. So it's, it's built into what we're already doing. And, um, and that's, that's, that's what teachers are seeing and they are getting excited about that. Definitely. And I actually had the opportunity to bring some of your ideas into some of the classrooms that I was working in and uh, the, the students were loving it. And, and these are ninth to 12th grade students and they, they wouldn't put their hands down with questions about the brain. They want to know how can my brain help me to improve? And it was, it was so amazing. I, I, I loved that, um, just watching their faces and, and seeing the excitement behind it. No, they, they absolutely do. And, it's, and one, one of the things that I think about all the time, when we think about breaking cycles of generational trauma and community trauma, um, you know, it, I mean, because ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, are just one small aspect. And I was reading this weekend, and I think this is fascinating. It's, it's not really the event that happens to a child, but what are the relational buffers that that child has? And, um, you know, what is, who is there? Um, you know, and, and so I get really excited about that because I think about community adversities. So we've got individual ACEs, we've got community ACEs, we have institutional ACEs, we have generational ACEs, and I think middle school and high school are absolutely prime times to begin teaching our young adolescents about their neuroanatomy and and about and, and this is how we break those cycles. It it, it starts before um, sometimes young adulthood when you know young adults are getting married and having children and so I think how cool is it that at 12 and 13 or 11 years old or 14 you know, you're learning how trauma and adversity affect your brain. You learn about your stress response systems. You start learning about ways of regulating when you're feeling rough. So this is, I think we start to break these, these bigger adverse childhood experience um, communal um, ACEs in a way where we start teaching our middle and high school students about their neuroanatomy. Oh, that's amazing. It's amazing. And even to watch my own two girls, um, they, they know what I'm doing in here and they even know all the speakers, they know all about you and your work. And so it's just, it, everything is contagious. You know, everything we're doing when we're excited about something, then they get excited about it. So that's, it's a powerful topic, but, when I was researching Dr. Bruce Perry, I was shocked when I heard him talking about the vulnerability in the population that can occur when we're exposed to prolonged stress response. And I first learned about the impact of stress on the brain from you. And Dr. Perry brought in the research from families from the Katrina disaster in 2005 and how the research shows that the offspring of those families exposed to those levels of stress response had an increase of substance abuse issues. And that made me stop and think how important and timely your work is right now, especially during this pandemic time. 
But what about after this time? And for those marginalized families, can you dive deeper into why we must understand our brain right now? And I also wonder, do you have thoughts or plans to how we can reach these families that might be in need? Oh my goodness, I have to take a big sigh with that. I think that's why there are so many fabulous organizations right now that are coming together to for parents, for families, for educators that are addressing the effects of COVID-19. Because this is something none of us have ever experienced. And yet what we're seeing, just like Katrina happened in a region, but it had ripple effects and generational effects. And um, you know, there, there is, um, there's just so much to really contemplate here, but I think it all begins with understanding how these adversities affect us. I think that is, we had a meeting yesterday, we have a think tank at Butler, and there were nine of us zooming in. And I asked everybody to share how they were doing during this time and how this was affecting them personally and professionally. And every single one of these adults shared how this time was affecting them in a sensory way, in a way that took their breath away, or you know, they were just feeling almost suffocated, or like, is this ever gonna end? And they were, they were having such contagion with feeling what their students were going through right now. Some of them shared that they this, this time together has brought them closer to parents than they ever could have imagined. So it wasn't just the negative, it was the positive too. You know, it was, you know, how, how can we learn from this trauma that we all, this global national trauma that is affecting each one of us in such unique ways. So I feel as we move through this trauma, I think it's very important to share the science in very simple ways. You don't have to be a neuroscientist to understand how these events can impact your body and brain. And um, so I think we begin with that because again, it feels relieving. It feels good to the teachers that I'm working with through Zoom right now, to the different school districts. Um, It feels good to the students. It feels empowering to families too. And to know, my goodness, we've had a collision of roles Parents are teaching, teachers are parenting, parents are working and teaching and parenting. I mean, we all just in an instant, high school students went from five classes face-to-face with an adolescent brain to five classes online overnight. I mean, this is the unpredictable chronic adversity and that perceived isolation and that restraint, those are the conditions that are hardest on the developing brain. And we, we ha- they happened in a second. So I feel, as Dan Siegel shares so beautifully, that when we are aware of it and we can um, use the science to step away and be objective and say, this is not just happening to me, this is happening to everybody but we all have a different way of maybe showing that, that, you know, it's this too shall pass. So I, again, I love how the science is taking us beyond I'm stressed, 
beyond it's my fault beyond i can't believe this has happened to me my luck living in this time you know it's we we can all be you know we can we can label it what we want but i love how we can understand the reason for a rapid heartbeat we can understand the reason for tears all of a sudden we can understand the reason for shaking and we can understand the reason that we are experiencing this in a multitude of ways and that's through the science we're not victims you know we're not um in that sense um you know we we have the knowledge and and we we have the ability to um to name therefore to to tame it Absolutely. I love that because it really does work once you know what's going on. It it doesn't have its power anymore over you. So that's I love that name entertainment. And just kind of wrapping this all up. When is your book going to be be available? How can people reach you? And just some final thoughts of um, words of wisdom from you as we close out our wonderful time together here, Lori. Ah, oh, Andrea, thank you so much. Well. So um, just final thoughts about the book. It's a real shift in perspective. Um, and it is really looking at discipline through a lens of co-regulation. Um, we know that when a child is needing um, some redirection and needing us to um, validate and to notice how they're feeling, what they're sensing, um, when we are both angry and both escalated, we don't hear words. Um, and so this is something that, you know, is the crux of the book. We know that um, traditionally we have aligned consequences with negative behaviors. And so throughout this book, we talk about re-terming or relabeling the things that traditionally have been seen as punitive. So thinking about how consequences can be learning experiences, thinking about how we co-regulate each other before words are shared, and really focusing on the educator brain state um, and looking at how it takes a calm um, adult to calm a child. So um, the book is uh, gonna be ready to go January, 2021. And um, we are going to include an entire resource section for this book so that all of the practices and strategies that I have been sharing everywhere with school districts across the country um, are going to be shared in the book. And um, so we're really, really, I'm, I'm just so excited to bring, this, to bring this to schools and to families. This is as much about me as a mom as it is about me as an educator. It sure is, because everything that we're learning for our professional work, we do apply in the home world because we want the best for our families, too. Absolutely. Lori, I can't thank you enough for all you've done for me here, um, all, the, all the learning that I've got from you. I want to thank you so much for coming on this show, being a returning guest, and for everything that you're doing for the world in educational neuroscience. If someone wants to reach you um, to learn more, what's the best resource for you right now? So I can always be, so our website is revelationsineducation.com. And then um, I have my Butler University email. And um, so I'm really easy to find, um, you know, through Butler in the College of Education. And um, thank you, Andrea. I'm just really, really excited. We are 
we are, um, you know, we're going to be sharing this book in the framework of this applied educational neuroscience through the lens of um, a relational discipline protocol as we share the book. So we're going to be doing trainings and professional development, and we're just super excited um, to bring this into homes and into school communities. Well, as soon as it's ready, I'll link everything and share it and, and post away. I appreciate all you've done. Thank you so much, Lori. Oh, Andrea, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.